Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word and our time together in it. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to James chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of James. James chapter 4, and this morning uh, we'll be continuing where we left off last week. We'll pick it up this morning in verses 7 through 10. So James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, if you'll follow along now as I read our text, beginning in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You may be seated. After addressing the two types of wisdom, worldly and godly, in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3 and chapter 4, James now shows us the antithesis of a life lived according to heavenly wisdom. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 6, James shows us the havoc caused when worldly wisdom, rather than heavenly wisdom, dominates the lives of believers. And this worldly wisdom manifests itself in at least three ways. In verses 1 to 10, we see that it manifests itself in the, the lust for pleasure. In verses 11 to 12 of chapter 4, it manifests itself in harsh criticism of fellow believers. And then in chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6, it manifests itself in arrogant disregard for God when it comes to our planning and our resources. Last week, we began looking at this first section, verses 1 to 10, and the fact that worldly wisdom manifests itself in a sinful lust for pleasure. And this, James said in verse, verses 1 and 2a, is the reason why there are quarrels and fights among believers in the church. They have allowed the fulfillment of their fleshly desires, their pleasures to dominate their lives. And when this happens, it diminishes the importance of God, the things of God, and others. It's personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost. And woe to anyone who interferes or stands in the way of the personal gratification we've set our hearts on, because frustrated desires leads to quarrels, conflict, and even violence, James tells us. 
And secondly, in the last part of verse 2 and in verse 3, James showed us that the lust for pleasure also results in prayerlessness and unanswered prayer. James says they didn't have because they didn't ask. In other words, they didn't pray. And they didn't pray, they didn't pray for certain things because they knew perfectly well that they couldn't honestly do so. Either the things they wanted were wrong, or their desire to have them was wrong, or the way they intended to use them was wrong. Whatever it may have been, they knew it was inappropriate to ask God for them. But then in verse 3, there were some pleasure-seeking believers who did express their desires in prayer, but they didn't receive because their motives were wrong. They wanted God to give them things so that they could squander them on their sensual, fleshly desires for pleasure and gratification. And then thirdly, in verse 4, we, we saw that the lust of, for pleasure has a devastating impact on our relationship to God. Christians who attempt to pursue both God and the world are guilty of spiritual adultery. Because we're being unfaithful to our Lord. And so God regards his children who live for their self-centered pleasures as adulteresses. Spiritual adulteresses. Well, how in the world does this happen? Well, this happens, James says, when we make ourselves friends with the world. Meaning, of course, the present world system whose values, loves, ways, and deeds are dominated by and under the power of Satan and completely at odds with what pleases our Lord. When we live according to the fleshly desires produced by earthly wisdom, we become friends with this world and friendship with the world puts us, James says, in a relationship of hostility with God. When we're entangled with the world, we stand opposed to God and what he wants to accomplish in our lives. Thankfully, James didn't stop there. Though to encourage us, he said in verse 5, as the New King James Version says, which really gives the, the sense of the meaning, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Holy Spirit given to us by God at conversion, the Holy Spirit who sealed our redemption, yearns jealously for our total loyalty and devotion to Him. He he rightly claims our undivided love and He will tolerate no rival for our affection. James wants us to know that God loves his people with such a passion that he cannot bear any other love within their hearts. And this is not an insecure jealousy. This is not an insecure jealousy that's afraid you're going to find someone or something better because there isn't anyone or anything better. This is a secure jealousy that seeks what is best for you by guarding our hearts from adulterous pursuits. And then in verse 6, for worldly-minded, for, for those whose unsatisfied lust for pleasure was causing quarrels and fights, prayerlessness and unanswered prayer, for those in their faithfulness to God who had become friends of the world and by doing so had put themselves at enmity with God. James said the cure is this, but he gives more grace, more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so God gives more grace. 
If that's the answer, more grace. And understand, this is not saving grace. How do we know? Because it says more grace. Every believer already has saving grace. This is literally more grace or greater grace. It speaks of God's gracious supply to live as we ought in a fallen world. As God's children, we sometimes give in to the lusts and desires of the flesh and we become worldly-minded and in our unfaithfulness we stray. But James wants us to know that no matter how much you and I have failed, no matter how much we have wandered from him and insulted him with our lack of devotion, our spiritual adultery, all is not lost because God gives more grace. Grace greater than all our sin. His grace gives victory over the lust and cravings of our sinful hearts. But it's also true, as the last part of verse 6 says, that God opposes the proud. God does not give grace to the proud. He does not give grace to uh, the proud, self-reliant, self-righteous person. No, he actively opposes the proud. It's a picture of God in full battle array. Actively opposing the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. While God stands actively opposed to the proud, he is always ready to meet the needs of the humble. And so the cure for sinful worldliness that we've allowed into our lives is grace. And God gives more grace. But how do we receive this more grace, this greater grace? Because we must not think uh, this means passivity or inactivity on our part. James is not saying just trust in God and do nothing else. Just let go and let God. That's not what James says at all. So the question is, what do we do that we might receive this more grace? What James is going to tell us. As we come to verses 7 to 10 this morning, James finishes this section with a call for wandering, self-seeking, worldly, double-minded Christians to return to God. In short, James calls upon sinning believers to repent. And although the word repent or repentance is not found in our text, the concept is certainly here, and it's easy to see that this is what James has in mind. And I doubt that we can find a passage which the church today needs more than the one before us this morning. Because this passage gives us the cure for world-infected Christians. And the church today desperately needs this cure. In this paragraph, James uses a series of brief exhortations. And each one is expressed by a tense that indicates there is an urgency, a a, a sincere urgency about it. In other words, he's saying, start doing this. Don't delay. This This is urgent. This is always urgent. This is not something that one can put off. No, this is something that demands immediate compliance. And his direct commands can be summarized as follows. Submit yourselves to God, verse 7. Resist the devil, verse 7. Draw near to God, verse 8. 
Cleanse your hands and heart, verse 8. Have godly sorrow for our sins, verse 9. And humble yourselves before God, verse 10. So let's begin looking now at verses 7 to 10, where James calls Christians to repentance. He begins with a command to submit to God. And this is another reason that James is not speaking to unbelievers here. An unbeliever does not have the capacity within them to submit to God. Not at all. Only a believer indwelt by the Spirit of God has the capacity to submit to God. So he begins with a command to submit to God. Look at verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The word therefore indicates that the exhortations or commands that that follow are prompted by the sinful behavior outlined in verses 1 to 6. So James says, in light of that, in light of your sinful behavior, in light of these things, submit yourselves to God. The word submit was primarily a military term, meaning literally to rank under or to line up under. It means to place oneself in order under the authority of another. And the word was used of soldiers under the authority of their commander. And of course, in our context, the Lord is the commander and we are to submit to his authority and rule. Now, the word submission can can sound almost passive. but But to submit here is active. It speaks of voluntary, active allegiance to God. So submission is a voluntary act of the will enabled by God's indwelling spirit whereby we recognize the lordship and authority of God over our lives and then we place ourselves under his direction yielding our will to his. It's the attitude of not my will but yours be done. For as Elizabeth Elliot said, the rule of heaven is thy will be done, but the rule of hell is my will be done. I mean, the essence of sin is setting your will over God's. But submitting to God means lining up your will under his will. And if we're going to be completely honest, we have to confess that we're not naturally inclined to do this, are we? Because we are predisposed to submit to no one other than ourselves. Because we are by nature and choice independent and autonomous beings, and we don't want anyone telling us what to do or not to do. We want to be ruled by no one other than self. We strive to get our own way. We want to pull our own strings, be our own boss, do our own thing. But you see, God, our creator, our Lord and master, has created and organized this world, and especially the church, to operate on the basis of a certain hierarchy of authority. And I know that many have a knee-jerk reaction to this. But there's no escaping the fact that God has commanded that we be submissive. With regard to the state, we're to be subject to the governing authorities. That is, until they overstep their bounds and begin to tell us how we can worship or when we can worship or want us to do something the Word of God forbids or not do something the Word of God commands. In the context of the home, 
Children are to be submissive to their parents. In marriage, wives are to be submissive to their husbands. And this isn't something the husband uh, is to demand. Remember, submission is a voluntary act of the will. Husbands have no right to demand this. And they themselves have to remember that they are under uh, submission to God. When it comes to our jobs, employees are to submit to their employers. And in the church, all are to be submissive to the elders. And maybe you don't like this. And if not, then you need to ask yourself if you truly believe in the authority of God's word to set the agenda for all our relationships. And let me just remind everyone that except in the case of our submission to God, our submission in other contexts to other people has absolutely nothing to do with the issue of equality or worth. Rather, biblical submission is an issue of function. So what does it mean for us to submit to God? Well, as I already mentioned, it means actively, voluntarily placing ourselves under His authority and direction and yielding our will to His. It also means to acknowledge that God's written word, the Bible, is the highest authority over our lives. And to submit to God means that we believe all that he says and then we seek to obey all that it commands. We are not free to pick and choose what feels good or what we want to obey. We are subject to every word of Scripture. It also means we trust God no matter what happens or comes into our lives, even though we will never in this life fully understand God's reason for them. Yet we trust Him because we know that nothing happens to us apart from our loving God's providential permission or care. It also means we make the glory and honor and praise of God the highest goal of all that we do. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And of course, we have a model of this submission in the Lord Jesus. He modeled this submission for us when he was here on earth. Jesus submitted himself to his earthly parents. Jesus was always perfectly submitted to his Father's will. And now all things are in subjection to him. And because we are in Christ, we have the ability and should have the desire to submit to God. And so the first thing James calls upon sinning believers to do is to submit to God. And the rest of verse 7, look what James commands. The next command is, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, virtually by definition, to submit to God, who is our Lord, is to resist the devil who was our old Lord. Resist the devil is another military term which means literally to oppose or to stand against or to take your stand against. And so James commands us to oppose, to take a stand against the devil. This word, which is translated devil, literally means the slanderer. And it's a fitting term for the prince of darkness who slanders God to man and man to God. In other places, he is called the God of this world, adversary, evil one, tempter, the ancient serpent, and so on. 
He refuses to submit himself to God and, and he seeks in every way possible to prevent others from doing so. Peter speaks of him as a roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. And the devil or Satan is a very real, very cunning, and very powerful enemy. The power of Satan should not be underestimated. But neither should it be overestimated. You see, we have to remember that Satan is a fallen angel, and all angels were created. Therefore, Satan is a created being. He is therefore, as Erwin Lutzer said, God's devil. He is not the equal and opposite power of God. Satan is no match for God. Unlike God, Satan's power is not infinite. He does not possess divine attributes. Scripture is clear that although Satan is powerful, he is not omnipotent. Though he is intelligent, he is not omniscient. Though he is active, he is not omnipresent. And best of all, Satan has been defeated. The Lord Jesus defeated him at his temptation and at the cross. As a defeated foe, Satan now has no power over the Christian except the power of seduction. Satan cannot lead a believer into sin without the consent of the believer's will. But he is a persistent foe. He's constantly seeking to undermine the believer's faithfulness and obedience to Christ by leading them to self-centered and world-centered attitudes and activities, thus leading them away from God. You see, that's what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to focus on ourself and our desires and not focus on God and the things of God. But the only influence that Satan or his minions can have over the child of God is the influence that we give him. The influence we give him when we give him opportunity, when we open up to his influences and his temptations, which is what many in the churches James is writing to had done. They had gone after the world. They, they willingly chose to do that. But James tells them and us to resist the devil. Resist the devil, and, James says, he will flee. And so here's a pledge that as powerful as, as Satan is, he will flee when he is resisted by the weakest believer. And so how do we resist or stand against Satan? Well, first of all, we need to understand the Christian is not instructed to attack the devil. That's foolishness. It's assumed that the devil will do the attacking. The Christian also is not instructed to bind and loose Satan. That too is utterly ridiculous. The Christian is not instructed that demons should be cast out of believers by a third party. That is nonsense. Because believers cannot be inhabited or possessed by a demon. So what does it mean to resist or stand against Satan? Well, first of all, if we're going to resist the devil successfully, we better not try to do it in our own strength. We must resist him in the strength of the Lord using the means that God has provided. So how do we resist the devil? We resist the devil by submitting to God, by loving God above all else, 
by filling our hearts and minds with the truth God has revealed in his word. We resist Satan by living in obedience to all that God has commanded. Another way to resist Satan is to flee from him. That is, to flee from his enticements or his temptations to sin. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And he was speaking about the love of money. So flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. And so we resist the devil by fleeing from temptations to sin. And when we flee from sin, the devil flees from us. We resist the devil the same way our Lord did when he was tempted and tested in the wilderness by Satan. He answered every temptation with Scripture. And then we're told the devil departed from him until an opportune time. And we resist the devil in the same way. We resist the devil by submitting to God and answering temptation with Scripture. We also resist by putting on the spiritual armor God has provided for every believer so that, as Paul says, we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I mean, this is the armor. These these are the the spiritual weapons of our warfare. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and then prayer. Our own prayers and the prayers of others. And when confronted with the whole armor of God and the sword of the Spirit, the devil acknowledges his defeat by fleeing. But he returns again and again, sometimes immediately after his defeat. You and I can withstand the devil. We can resist the devil if we submit to God. Love him above all else. Fill our hearts and minds with his word. Live in obedience to all his commands. Answer every temptation with scripture. Flee temptation. Put on the spiritual armor. Take up the sword of the spirit and pray. I know that's not as glamorous and self-edifying as running around, declaring and binding and loosing, but all of that's utterly ridiculous and totally useless. This is how we resist the devil. Any believer who resists with these things will put the devil to flight. And this is not arrogance. This is simply the truth of God's word. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. The next command is in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. Well, this command indicates to us that the reader's involvement with the world had moved them away from God. Their worldliness had resulted in a distancing from God. I mean, sin does that. Sin alienates. It alienates, but it does not separate us from God in terms of our relationship with Him. It doesn't remove us from God's family. We've been born again. We're new creations or new creatures. Old things have passed away. They're gone. The old man is dead. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ, and we can never be anything but that. 
But we can be separated in terms of our fellowship and communion with him because sin brings a break in the intimacy of our fellowship. There's a distancing. There's a a coldness because we're not walking with the Lord as we should be. And that's what's going on here. Their worldliness had resulted in a distancing from God and and they're commanded now to draw near to God, to turn their attention back to God and, and make right their relationship with him. And it should, of course, be obvious that James is not here talking about salvation, but about the repentance of those who are already Christians. I mean, to draw near or approach or come near to God was used in the Septuagint of the priest in the tabernacle, duly qualified to approach God with their sacrifices. It was also used in a wider sense of man's approach to God in worship. Thus, the the term conveys the thought of entering into communion with God as acceptable worshipers. And that is the sense here. This is not an evangelistic call but rather an appeal to believers who have been contaminated in some way by worldliness to return and to give their full attention, full affection, and full devotion to God. And when they do, James promises, they will find that God is always willing to meet them. He graciously responds by drawing near to us in turn. Those who sincerely repent and turn to God will find him like the father of the prodigal son, eager to receive back his erring child. Remember when when the prodigal returned to his father? Remember what the father did? His father went to meet him. In fact, his father ran to meet him and embraced him, kissed him. When we come to see that we've allowed ourselves to become too friendly with the world, if we will humble ourselves in repentance, acknowledge and confess our sin, our dear Lord will pour out even greater grace upon us. He'll draw us back into fellowship and communion with Him. I mean, we thought He'd be far from us because of our carnality and worldliness. But when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us and he forgives us and restores us. As the psalmist said in Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And you know the wonderful thing is this. You never need to have an appointment to draw near to God. There's never an inappropriate time to visit God. You will never ever be turned away if you draw near to Him through faith in Christ. But drawing near to God includes more than repentance. Certainly it includes that. Certainly it includes obedience. But drawing near to God also includes drawing near to God to worship Him, to serve Him, to meet Him, to seek help, and to gain assurance. All of those things are involved in drawing near to God. And the closer we draw to the Lord, the closer we live to Him, the more we will know His comfort, support, and power. And the easier it is to resist the devil. And I'm sure that every believer here this morning would readily and quickly agree that we need to draw nearer to the Lord. But the question is, 
Are we doing it? Are we doing it? Our tendency is to draw near with our lips, but not with our hearts. To draw near with our lips, but not with our lives. And now in the rest of verse 8, James gives a command notice to cleanse your hands and to purify your hearts. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It seems that the strong phrase, and it's a very strong phrase, you sinners, was used deliberately by James to pierce his reader's conscience. And although this word is commonly used of the unsaved, the fact that James uses it here coupled with double-minded makes makes clear that he is applying the term to Christians. And I say that because the word double-minded used only here and in chapter 1 verse 8 literally means having two souls or two souls. And it speaks not of an out-and-out unconverted sinner, but of a Christian who finds himself constantly torn in his affections between God and the world. It speaks of the instability, fickleness, and vacillation of the person who loves God and the world. You know, these people who were trying to enjoy a relationship with the world and, and with God at the same time. And this is why James rebuked them as adulteresses. And such persons... James says, must repent. And so he says to them, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. This has nothing to do with personal hygiene. (laughs) Hands and hearts here refer respectively to our deeds, our conduct and our thoughts and affections. In other words, James is speaking about the need for repentance in both terms of our external behavior and our internal attitudes behind it. Well, someone's bound to say, well, now, wait a minute. I thought we'd already been cleansed by the blood of Christ. I thought our hearts have already been purified. Well, that's true. That's exactly right. The cleansing received at the time of salvation, the cleansing from the penalty of sin through the blood of Christ takes place only once at conversion. But there is a difference between the once-for-all time cleansing or purification that comes when we first put our faith in Christ and the need for the ongoing daily experiential cleansing that comes when we fall into sin in the course of living our daily lives in a fallen world. If you have trusted Christ alone as Lord and Savior, you have had your sins forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. And you are, in that sense, perfectly clean and pure. We call this justification. That is your position in Christ. You have been justified. But practically or experientially, As we live each day in battle against our fallen flesh, we need that daily, constant cleansing and and purification from our repeated defilement by sin through our contact with the world in order that the fellowship we have with the Lord might not be broken. We call this sanctification. And it's sanctification that James has in mind in this exhortation. 
And when James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, he no doubt has in mind the particular sins he's just noted in verses 1 to 6. Quarrels, fights, even violence, covetousness, selfish motives, spiritual adultery, friendship with the world. Well, how do we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts? Well, by acknowledging and confessing our sins to the Lord. Isn't that what John tells us in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he restores us to fellowship, to that that vital relationship with him, that, that intimate fellowship with him. And so this is what we're to do. James' point is simply that if we desire to draw near to God, to return to close, intimate fellowship and communion with him, that we might enjoy the depths of his intimacy and love, then we need to confess and repent from the sins both of both the hand and the heart. And you know, so many times believers, especially if they've been a believer for a long time, uh, they think because they're not committing, you know, uh, you know overt sins, they have no sin. Or they can't think of one anyway. But they forget the sins of omission. Of not doing all that God commands us to do. God demands undivided affection as well as undefiled conduct so that we might enjoy the the depths of his intimacy and love, we need to confess and repent from the sins of both the hand and the heart. And next, in verse 9, James commands sinning believers, notice, to have godly sorrow over their sin. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. These words go together to stress the inner agony and misery James' readers should feel over their unfaithfulness to God. And if, if there was ever something that, that seems so out of touch with evangelicalism today, it's this. Because it seems that so much of evangelicalism today is all about, well, you just being happy. We're just supposed to be happy, happy, happy. We just do whatever we want, and Jesus loves us, and we're just going to just go along and just be happy. Well, No. We're to live our lives submitted to God. Our will submitted to His. Live in obedience to His Word. And we don't do that multiple times throughout the day. And there are times when this goes on for extended periods. So James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Be wretched. Paul used this word of his own condition in Romans 7 when he said, wretched man that I am. I mean, this helps us to understand the, the, the meaning of the word because Paul was clearly groaning under the burden of indwelling sin as a believer. And a true grasp of the awfulness of our sin will lead to true sorrow and grief, or it should. Mourn is the word we would use for the kind of sorrow that surrounds death. 
Weep is the word we, we would use for the, the outward weeping of a broken-hearted mourner. But here it means crying or, or sobbing because of sin and shame. I mean, such tears are a sign that a man is broken to pieces because of his sin. And taken together, these words call for a deep, broken-hearted sorrow for sin. They, they, they are depicting the emotional expressions of repentance. And it's a misery that stems from a true sense of one's own guilt and a recognition that because we are sinners, we don't deserve divine blessings. It's the cry of the heart that knows it has offended the righteousness of God and, and has no hope apart from God's mercy. A gr- good example of this is Peter, you know, weeping bitterly. I mean, just sobbing. Sobbing in shame when he, he was seized with the realization of the enormity of his sin and denying Jesus. You say, well, yeah, he denied Jesus. Hey, you and I deny Jesus every day by the way we live and the things we do and the thoughts we think. So James is referring... Uh, referring to this deep kind of sorrow with his command, be wretched, mourn, and weep. I mean, his words are really reminiscent of, of the Old Testament prophets who called for the people to repent, to grieve over their sins, and to sit in sackcloth and ashes. What this is is just a scathing denunciation of worldly Christians who are so insensitive and superficial that they're laughing when they ought to be weeping. Have we ever wept over our sins? I mean, truly. Have we ever wept over our sins? You know, some people weep over the fact they got caught. Some people weep over the fact uh, that there's going to be serious consequences for their sin. Or they weep uh, over what people will think of them because of their sin. But they don't grieve and mourn and weep over their sins. And so I ask again, have we ever wept over our sins? In view of the shamefulness of our sin, weeping is not at all inappropriate. But laughter is. And this is why in the rest of the verse, James says, look back at verse 9. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, please (laughs) do not make the mistake of thinking that this is how God wants us always to live our lives as his children. Not true. No, remember James is directing these commands to those in the churches he was writing to who were spiritual adulteresses, friends of the world, and and they were treating it as if it were no big deal. Like people today treat so many sins that are just almost respectable. Yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, but whatever. And they were insensitive to their sins. They had become indifferent to what it means to defy and dishonor God and His grace. 
The sense of the seriousness of sin had been somewhat blunted. And James is probably thinking in the same terms as Solomon in the book of Proverbs when he said, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. I mean, James is trying to jerk these believers back to reality by calling them to a sober reassessment of their own souls. Now, don't think for a moment James is opposed to joy. He is not. Remember, he told us back in James chapter 1, verse 2, to rejoice even in the midst of trials. But his point here is simply that sin is no laughing matter. We may take it lightly, but he wants us to know the sin is no laughing matter. It's not something to be flippant about. I mean, rejoice in holiness. Find in Christ and his beauty a reason for joy inexpressible and full of glory, but don't take lightly and don't treat as trivial your worldliness and sin. Because the light and indifferent attitude of many believers in the face of sin is an indication of a selfish pursuit of a relationship with the world. And we should always remember that the pleasures of sin are short-lived. I worry about some of you. I really do. I worry about some of you because some of you are calloused and careless about your sin. And you treat it as something trivial. But you need to mourn and weep and exchange your laughter for heartfelt sorrow and repentance. But there are others here who are burdened by your guilt. And you're saddened by your failures and and sorrowing over your sin. And if that's you, you need to rejoice with joy inexpressible that your sins are forgiven in Christ. And that there is more grace. That there is greater grace. Grace greater than all your sin and all your need. As Psalm 34.18 promises, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. And in Psalm 51.7, where David laments his sin with Bathsheba, he writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So some of you this morning who are just burdened down by your guilt, need to rejoice in your forgiveness and the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. So James, he's not condemning all laughter, but rather thoughtless, hard-hearted laughter that makes light of sin. There's no doubt James would have gladly echoed the sentiment of the psalmist when he said in Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. 
James certainly would have agreed with Paul that we should rejoice always as we find delight in in the sweetness and the freedom of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. James is just telling us not to be trivial with sin. Rather, we should grieve over our sin, mourning and weeping in tears over it. We, We need to see sin this way. And one present-day theologian has has talked about how we have lost this view of sin. He said this, The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow is dimmed, he said. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people and would to God that it did today. You know, genuine repentance is not just the glib, I'm sorry that I offended you, or I'm sorry that you're upset, implying it's really your fault. When you're truly repentant, you accept full responsibility for your sin. You do not excuse it as a shortcoming or oversight, and you mourn and weep over how you have offended God, disgraced his name, and hurt your brother or sister in Christ. So let me ask you, when was the last time you grieved over your sin before God? Lastly, in verse 10, James commands sinning believers to humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James ends this section where he began in humility and submission to God. I mean, humility is is arguably the most essential, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life though it's certainly looked down upon in the world. I mean, today people take classes on being assertive and winning through intimidation, right? But humility is the most essential, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life. What is humility? Well, very quickly, humility is not thinking little of yourself, and it is certainly not thinking highly of yourself, Humility is thinking rightly about yourself. It makes a right estimate of oneself. Sinclair Ferguson said, Humility is not simply feeling small and useless like an inferiority complex. It is sensing how great and glorious God is and seeing myself in that light. So humility comes not by focusing on ourselves, not by comparing ourselves to others, but rather by focusing on Christ and seeing ourselves in light of who He is. He is the standard. And as we focus on Him, it keeps things in perspective because it shows how poor and needy and weak we are. 
And it keeps us in that place of humble dependence upon his mercy and grace. I mean, this final command is something of a reaffirmation of verses 6 and 7. I mean, there we were told that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And for that reason, we should submit to him. And here we're told to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will exalt us. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I mean, this command is so counterintuitive. I mean, it's one of the many paradoxes of the Christian life, such as he who is last shall be first. He who becomes a slave will be free. He who dies shall live. He who is humbled shall be exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord, James says, and he will exalt you. I mean, this is a prominent theme throughout all of Scripture. In the Psalm, Psalm 147, verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts down the or he casts the wicked to the ground. Proverbs 3, 34, to the humble the Lord gives favor or grace. In the prophets, in the book of Ezekiel, exalt the lowly, bring low the exalted. In the Gospels, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the epistles, Peter said, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And Jesus himself lived this out, didn't he? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that after Jesus' humiliation and his incarnation and death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus submitted to and verified his own spiritual law through his own earthly life. And during his time on earth, on three separate occasions, Jesus repeated this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're not to sit around waiting passively for this to just somehow happen. We're not to wait for someone else to humble us. Nor should we wait for the difficulties and downturns of life to do it. I've heard people pray, God humble us. Oh, you don't want that. I'm serious. We're told to humble ourselves. And if we don't, God will humble us. And it will not be pleasant. No, we're, told, we're told to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. It's our Christian duty. I mean, we need to take inventory of our sinfulness and weakness and then bow in total submission to God, yielding our will, our total being, our hopes, our dreams, our future, our absolute everything to Him. You know, acknowledging God's right to rule our lives and our readiness to do His will. And it's then that He will pour on the grace, the grace upon grace, grace heaped upon grace. And then, James tells us, He will exalt us. The gospel writers record that two people wanted to follow Jesus and and were, were willing to give up everything except that which was dear to them. For the one, it was his family. For the other, it was money. 
And Jesus refused to accept these would-be followers because they could not give him their undivided devotion. In effect, they were double-minded. One old Puritan's motto is this, To you, O Lord, I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. That's such a great attitude to have. It is absolutely ridiculous. It is utterly absurd for a true child of God to think that he can serve two masters when the Bible tells us we cannot. The Lord calls us to a single-minded devotion to himself. As one man said, he wants us to have eyes only for him. And so the question is, are we worldly, double-minded Christians with wandering eyes, one raised to heaven and one focused on earth? Or do we only have eyes for him? You see, when we submit ourselves to the Lord, when we submit our heart to the Lord, our lives, He wants it all. He wants it completely. If we give part of it to the world, God cannot be our Lord and Master because He demands that we approach Him with singleness of heart and true humility. And when we humbly submit ourselves before God unreservedly, trusting Him ultimately, He will exalt us at the proper time. The exalting may be in this life or it may be in the next. But either way, as Peter said, it will be at the proper time. In other words, it will be in God's perfect time. But if you're proud, self-reliant, self-righteous, God will be against you in your pride. But if you are humble, And you humble yourself before him. And he will give you grace. And he will exalt you in his perfect time. Boy, that's what I want. How about you? Let's stand in the way. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.